Welcome to the Nothing Is Wasted podcast, conversations designed to help you as you live, learn, and lead through pain. And now the host of the Nothing Is Wasted podcast, Davey Blackburn. Hello, welcome to the Nothing Is Wasted podcast. My name is Davey. I'm your host. And I'm your co-host, Aubrey. Aubrey, today we have a conversation. It's actually a two-part conversation with Dr. Anita Phillips. We're going to do a a conversation with her about racial reconciliation as a continuation of the conversations we've been having about racial reconciliation. This particular one is not about that. It's actually about mental health and faith, kind of the conjunction or crossroads of those two things. And I'm super grateful that we had Dr. Anita on the podcast, and you were the one that kind of brokered that relationship for us. Uh, You guys know each other from, from way back, or what's the relationship there? So we actually got to know each other through COVID of all things. Oh, yeah. um, she, so I was part of a prayer group that met over Zoom every Thursday, almost as soon as kind of the world shut down. It was a group of uh, female church leaders and authors and speakers that just felt like, man, we got to be praying right yeah. now. The mm-hmm. Lord is doing something. Let's just be on our knees. Right. So we met every Thursday over Zoom and prayed for about an, uh, just about 30 minutes. It was mm-hmm. fantastic. And One of those weeks was the day after, or at least the same week that George Floyd was killed. Mm. So we had gathered to pray and um, there was a little bit, I would say, an elephant in the Zoom room. And finally, um, several of the black women on the call just said, can we just stop for a second? Because we were praying, but no one had mentioned Mm. George Floyd. And um, a couple women just started really opening up their hearts saying, hey, we feel like we're half the church here. And especially right here on this Zoom call, we're half half the church. But it is killing us that you all, meaning the white women, the non-black women, um, aren't just weeping over this because we're weeping over this. And it was a very holy moment. And um, then... Um, amazingly, Dr. Anita Phillips and another woman on the call invited uh, several of us the following week over the next few weeks to just join in and listen and learn about issues around race and um, racial trauma, but also racial reconciliation and unity in the body and what the Bible has to say about this stuff. As listeners, as you'll hear, Dr. Anita Phillips is brilliant. Um, but she, her highest authority is the word of God. She loves Jesus and believes that he is making all things new and he will bring unity to the church. And so she was a wonderful woman to get to learn under. And I felt like when we kind of felt like the Lord was moving us at Nothing Is Wasted to bring some of these conversations to the forefront of what we're doing, that we had to have her as a woman, as a black woman, as an expert really, and especially as a woman who's just devoted to Jesus Christ first and foremost. So I'm grateful, Davey, that you got to spend time with her and that she didn't just talk about racial reconciliation, though. She talks a lot about mental health, which is one of her fields of expertise in this episode mental health and faith really became a passion for Dr. Anita because of something intense that happened to her in her childhood. And just to warn the listener, part of Dr. Anita's story is that her sister who struggled with mental illness Mm -hmm. did at one point try to kill her. 
And so she is going to talk about that. It's obviously a very heavy part of this conversation that you have, but a really important part because you begin to see how God used it um, to shape the trajectory of Dr. Anita's life and ultimately bring some ministry and and some goodness out of it. Right. And I think this this topic that she talks about, obviously it's one we talk about quite a bit on the Nothing Is Wasted podcast, um, because you know, mental health and trauma are so closely correlated oftentimes. Mm. Um, but it can be difficult to reconcile sometimes the, the intersection of faith and mental health. You know, I think yeah. about some of the folks that we've had on the podcast, like uh, Kayla Steckline, who has talked about this really well. Um, if you want to go back and listen to her episode where her husband died by suicide and there was, Mm. you know, a lot of mental unhealth there as a pastor. And so that's kind of an extreme example of this, like this, like the crosshairs of these two things. And, 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 and it can leave us with a lot of questions going, well, how, how do those two things reconcile? Like, what is your, what does faith look like at the intersection of mental health and how, it does that mean that we are not really, you know, uh, do we not really have a strong relationship with Jesus if we're experiencing mental unhealth? Mm-hmm. Or do we not? That's a great question. We can ask those questions a lot because of that. And this is frankly a pretty new topic that we're be- just now beginning to uncover um, on how these two things intersect. I do think um, sometimes we have to be careful to assume that you know, people who do struggle with mental health, um, that they haven't been created in the image of God, right? Or that God isn't at work in their lives. I think about, um, I mean, all throughout the scripture, even David especially seemed to struggle with depression. Now, clearly we're putting some very modern Western lenses on the scripture when we say that. But to hear some of the other psalmists say, like, darkness is my only companion. Clearly there were uh, biblical folks who struggled with some type of mental health right, issues. Right. And so um, I'm grateful that some of these uh, experts are beginning to study this stuff and bring to light what it means yeah. um, to intersect our faith and our mental health, because I do think it's an area that the church needs to learn a whole lot of yeah. uh, wisdom and and love and compassion. I think, by the way, going back to Kayla's episode, her episode is number 77, I'd highly suggest our listeners check that episode out like you recommended, Dave, because it's a great one to learn from. Yeah. And, you know, to your point, you're right. You see so many characters in scripture that seem to struggle with uh, mental illness or mental unhealth. You you know, you look at Elijah, and I know we've mm-hmm. talked about this before, but he got to a place where he just said, hey, I just want to die. Right. You've got Paul who says, hey, we've had so many struggles and trials that we despair of life itself. You've got a lot of this where the the Bible is pretty open about the struggles that people experience and what looks like mental uh, unhealth in some of the characters. And yet, at the same time, we know that uh, that Jesus and walking with Jesus is the pathway to healing from That's these right. things as well. And so we, we can't hold these two things at, at odds with each other, but they are... Um, parallel experiences that we, in this fallen world, we have to understand, um, you know, this, this does exist and there is a pathway to find healing in these things. I'm reading a book right now called the God shaped brain. 
Hmm. And it's by Timothy R. Jennings, who's a, a doctor and psych, psychiatrist. Um, and he talks about some of the stories of his patients that he began to see breakthroughs in their mental unhealth when he helped them untangle the false beliefs about God and help them to reestablish right beliefs about God, scriptural wow. beliefs, truthful beliefs. Wow. And it was, it's so profound when you read it because it really does like what you believe about God really does change your brain chemistry. Mm. There is a, there is a physiological and biological reaction that is happening in your brain. Like your actual brain pathways can change. Exactly. And, and they are, they're getting rutted out in grooves. The more false beliefs are being reinforced inside of you. And so whether it's because of a traumatic experience, like what Dr. Anita goes through, Mm -hmm. or whether it's just because of, you know, societal influences, your early, um, early influencers as your childhood influences, these different experiences that you have that begin to cause you to believe certain things about God. There are these deep ruts that ultimately can lead to a disorientation of how the world operates and your place in the world. Yeah. And so that what was so profound about this book and, and there's study after study after study where he brings it into the psychology of it as well is that as he helps people untangle these things and as he helps to re- reinforce the right beliefs about God, he's actually tracking and seeing brain activity changing, brain chemistry changing. And that blows my mind because I'm looking at it going, man, that like God is the, he didn't just create our brain, but he also like, he heals our brain, and this is so integrated that we have to understand that these are these two things are not held at, at in opposition. They're not diametrically opposed, um, you know, concepts or, or polarizing concepts. For people who are interested in this, I'll just mention one more book. Um, there's a book called Anatomy of the Soul by Kurt Thompson, also a doctor, and he talks about the connections between neuroscience and spiritual practices. Yeah. And again, I feel like this is just a field where um, we have a lot to learn. We so I'm, I'm learn. really excited that we get to at least enter a little bit into that conversation with your interview with Dr. Anita Phillips. Let's go ahead and take a listen. Dr. Anita, it is an honor to have you on our podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm honored to be here. Well, right now, uh, we've got so much going on in, in, in terms of what's happening in our world and uh, what's going on with race conversations, what's going on politically, what's going on with COVID. There's just so much tension that's happening. And we decided as a ministry, we wanted to ha- be strategic about having some ongoing conversations about race and diversity. We wanted to make sure that we did not let things just escalate and crescendo and then die off. And we're so glad that you have uh, agreed to come and and be a part of those conversations with us. Um, I'm really looking forward to the things that you're going to bring to the table and the voice that you have um, and that you've been given during this season right now. I would love before we kind of dive into some of your story, just tell us a little bit about you right now. What do you do? What's your family like? Just give our listeners a little context. 
Uh, what do I do? So I'm a trauma therapist. Um, I've been uh, in this field for a long time. I was first licensed as a therapist in 2004. So I've been at this for a minute. I am married to a pastor, my husband, Michael Phillips. We've been pastors in Baltimore City in Maryland since, well, no, 2004. So we've wow. been 16 years as pastors. Wow. Uh, we've been married for 24 years and we have two kids. Our son is 20. Two, he'll be 23 in December, and our daughter just turned 18. So wow. actually, we had two graduates in 2020. Oh, um, all, everywhere I go, also, I must brag that my son graduated <laughs> from Harvard University Seriously? in the May of 2020. Wow. Yes, he did. He's a, awesome. a brilliant, brilliant um, young man. Congratulations. And uh, my daughter graduated high school in um, June of 2020. So it's been yeah. uh, quite a year for our family. You guys have a full life. I mean, this the work that you do and then your pa- your your husband being a pastor. It's so funny. I was just mm-hmm. talking to a pastor the other day and he and his wife just wrote a book called Help, I Married a Pastor. <laughs> I was like, that's so appropriate, you know. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Uh, tell, I tell you, I'm a third generation pastor's wife. Wow. And none of our husbands were pastors when we married them. So either God uses <laughs> us to make them hear him or we drive them to the altar. We're not sure. Yeah, but or, I am or, or the Lord knew that life. you wouldn't marry him if he was a pastor. <laughs> I kind of duped you into that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, mean, I wasn't too surprised. Um, he wasn't a pastor when we got married, but I definitely wasn't surprised that I was marrying someone who would be a pastor. We've been wow. uh, generationally, our families yep. have been at this for a long time. Man. My husband's a fifth generation pastor. Wow. So... We just really don't know much else. But I'm also a therapist, so I've always had my profession as well. That's awesome. Well, your your husband and I have something in common because I'm also a fifth generation pastor, preacher. There's a missionary... Right, sandwiched in between there, but I still consider them pastors. Just in yeah, we'll front, count that. Right? We'll, count we'll count that. that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's something. We have these long generational legacies in the yeah. church. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it's rare. It is powerful when you see that. And you know, for me, uh, walking through some tragedy and trauma that I walked through, I'm so grateful for that heritage because I feel like that that mm-hmm. was a bedrock and a hammock that caught me in the middle of my tragedy. And, 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 you know, I, I, I think that that's probably also something that maybe now that we're talking about it might come through as you kind of share some of your trauma that you grew up with. And so I'd love to Mm -hmm. do a deep dive and kind of go back to your past and, and talk about Mm -hmm. what got you into doing what you do right now. Well, I went into mental health because I was raised by pastors, as I just said, and I had an older sister who had a serious mental illness. And so I've been, I feel like I've been living at the intersection of faith and mental health my entire life. Uh, My sister was fine as far as I could tell until I was about six years old. And then something started changing. Prior to that, she was just a regular big sister. We shared our bedroom. She braided my hair and picked out outfits for me. And I just remember her being you know, what a big sister would be. But when I was about six years old, something changed. Uh, I like to say something went dark. Mm. She became irritable. She wasn't nice to me anymore. Um, She didn't want to help me with things. And I was even sometimes a little scared of her because she just seemed to become kind of mean. She was six years older than me. Mm. So she would have been around 12 at that time. And then she started having nightmares and she would wake up, we call them nightmares, but really they were like night terrors. So she would wake up in the middle of the night, eyes wide open, staring at our bedroom door, screaming, just these blood curdling screams that would snatch me out of my sleep. Um, because she said there were demons in our door 
And so she was seeing demons in the doorway. Oh, so now I, I was raised Pentecostal. My parents right. are still pastors in the Church of God in Christ. They've been pastoring for 45 years. Oh. And so we lived in what I would say is a very spiritually active house. Yeah. And I was not unfamiliar with what a demon was. And so I would face this choice each night. Do I run through the door mm. where there may be demons? to get my dad because he was the only person who could calm her. Mm. Our bedroom was on the second floor in the front of the house. Their bedroom was on the first floor in the back of the house. It would take a while for the screams to kind of make their way down the steps into their room to wake my parents. And so the choice was always, do I just huddle under my covers and plug my ears and try and survive these screams that would just rack my body? Or do I run through a door that is likely occupied by demons to get my dad to end it sooner? Um, some nights I chose to cower and some nights I ran through the door. Um, but it was hard. It was, it was a hard thing. And so of course the question was, okay, she's seeing demons. This is a, this is a acceptable possibility in our, in our faith realm. Um, and so there was prayer and there was unholy oil and those things. And, and she would have some weeks where things were quieter, but then it would rev back up. And so there was just this question of what is going on, because if this is a spiritual issue, then we should be able to take spiritual authority over it. Right. right. Um, so my dad is still preaching every Sunday. My mom, um, is a preacher as well. We come from a tradition where women weren't, um, widely accepted as preachers, but my mom was so amazing that she just couldn't be resisted. And so (laughs) (laughs) if you're good enough, you can't stop it. Right. (laughs) There was nothing you could do. You know, she would, I would go with her, um, when she would go out to preach and run revivals night after night, after night, after night, I'd watch her tarry on the altar in prayer and tears with people for hours after a service was over until that person really had a breakthrough with God. I've, I've, she was a trench worker for Jesus. And, um, I watched her do that all my childhood. And um, she would be out doing that. My dad's preaching on a Sunday morning we, and we're having this issue with my sister, just not knowing what to do. And so eventually um, my sister's condition worsened and she was hearing voices. Um, we found out later had been hearing them since she was a little kid. Oh and the voices told her to um, kill my grandmother who lived with us, my mother and me. My father was out of town and I had a younger brother who was just a toddler who was asleep at the time. And so my sister had um, gotten an ax and she uh, was determined that she was going to kill all of us. Um, I can still very clearly see the moment. She was in the basement with my grandmother. She was screaming at my grandmother that she was going to cut her head off. And my grandmother was like, you know, oh, in the name of Jesus, she's like, for Jesus sake, stop it. And she would just get so angry when she heard Jesus's name. And Um, so we had locked her in the basement. My mom was running to try and get help. And I was standing by the basement door. She opened the door and I could still see her face and that crack that the door would open with the chain saying, um, let me out. You know, she tried to sound nice. Let me out. You know, I just need to get out. And I said, no, you're trying to hurt us. I can't let you out. And she said, um, fine, I'm going to kill you too. And I just, that's where the memory ends. I don't even remember running away from the door. Just that's where it was just frozen in that space. And so, um, my mom got a neighbor to help. They called 911, um, ambulance and police and everyone came. The ambulance took her, um, away to a mental hospital. So that was the first time that she had gotten into contact with like mental health care. Um, my mom told me later that I'd really just found out some actually new details. I interviewed my mom when I kicked off my podcast earlier this year and I asked her some questions that I hadn't asked her before. And 
she told me that in the aftermath of that, she had gone to my sister's room and looked around and under the mattress, um, there were knives that had been missing for months. Oh my like gosh. my mom's knives were disappearing and she's like, where are these knives? And they were in this pillowcase that had just been shredded as if she had just been up there stabbing this pillowcase and all these knives were in her room. And, you know, but by the grace of God, yeah, she could have killed us in our sleep. Like anything, you know, could have happened. And so she was in the mental hospital for a few months. And I just remember being so relieved, you know, that, that she wasn't there because it was just always chaos um, yeah. in the house with her when she was present. Um, it turns out later she was diagnosed later in her life with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Um, today she'd probably be diagnosed as schizoaffective, but um, a lot of the behaviors that go with bipolar disorder in particular um, are not the kind of behaviors that make you people feel sorry for you. Um, when people have mental illness, sometimes people feel empathetic, like if they're depressed and they can't get out of bed. But when a bipolar person is manic, they can act out in extreme ways. And when my sister was manic, we didn't recognize it then. But now looking back, we realize when my sister was manic, she ran away from home. Um, she would stay out past curfew. She would drink. She would do all of these things that looked like she was just rebellious. Yeah. And um, I come from a strict home. And so she would be punished. Um, for being rebellious and it didn't seem to affect her. <laughs> so then she'd do something again. And I just was so miserable because my house was just filled with noise. Yeah. Yeah. Screaming and noise all the time, all the time. So when she would run away or she was at the mental hospital, I would be happy because I was a kid and I just felt like right. she's the trouble in the house, you know? Um, and so I started a, around that time thinking, like probably around middle school, thinking about going into um, psychology or something because I um, wasn't necessarily, I wanted to understand what was going on with her. Um, but I also, I think, was really wanting to help myself. You know, a lot of times yeah. people are like, oh, you went into this to, to rescue your sister. And I was just like, oh, that sounds so noble. I wish I was that good. But I can't say that that was true in the beginning. I think it was really just about wanting to understand what was happening from a faith perspective and from a mental health perspective and what was happening to me and the pain that I was enduring as well. Because um, while all that was going on, I was dealing with my own issues. I was exposed to pornography at a very young age. I was sexually assaulted at 14, um, didn't tell my parents because I they had enough trouble and so I was just kind of trying to take care of myself. Wow. So, yeah, wow. it was just when I think about it, it's nothing but God that I that I made it out right. of that. You know, everybody in the house was kind of in their own kind of hell, yeah. um, trying to figure out how do I frame this through the lens of my faith mm -hmm. and understand where God is in this. But I tell you what, we were talking about that heritage um, yeah. holding us. My mom, the most brilliant, most powerful, most anointed thing she ever said to me. Um, as a child, one time I walked into the room and she was just sitting in the living room. She was just crying. And I happened to come in and catch her just weeping about that. She, my sister had run away. Nobody knew where she was. She eventually got started to use drugs because of course the drugs quieted the voices and then yeah. she got addicted to the drugs. And so then we had that. Um, and my mom was just sitting in the living room crying and I walked in, I saw her crying and she looked at me and I guess she could see how upset I was, that she was so upset. Wow. 
And she said, Anita, I don't know what is happening. I don't understand any of this, but know this, God is good. That I am convinced of. She said, I am, I am convinced that God is good. Never question that. If something's gone wrong, it's the enemy is attacking us. It's, it's something that we have dropped the ball as human beings. It's an understanding that we don't have yet. And so we are confused. But no matter what we don't understand, this is what we do know. Mm. Don't ever blame God. Mm. He is good. And I believed her. And I'm so grateful for that moment because I probably wouldn't be saved today. I probably wouldn't be a Christian today if she had not inserted that seed into my into me in my formative years still um, and kind of written that in the wet concrete of my understanding so that it has always remained that I don't understand what's going on. But when we finish figuring it out, God is good will be a part of the truth. That's always going to be true. And um, it has anchored me. Yeah. It has anchored me. Yeah, it has anchored me. When pain comes into our lives, it's easy to want to avoid it, bury it, or run away from it. But if you've listened to the Nothing Is Wasted podcast for any amount of time, you would know that none of these approaches to dealing with pain actually end in purpose. Most of our guests have gone through long healing journeys that oftentimes involve counseling, which is why we've partnered with an incredible online worldwide organization called Faithful Counseling, who provides virtual counseling with licensed therapists who are certified by their state's board. If you're seeking traditional mental health counseling but would prefer hearing from a Christian perspective, Faithful Counseling may be a great option for you. Once you are matched with a counselor in 24 hours or less, you can connect with them anytime via your computer, tablet, or mobile phone, through video calls, phone calls, or even text messaging. They also have weekly group in our sessions where members can learn in a group environment with a counselor. Faithful Counseling is not a crisis line, but it can be an incredible resource in your healing journey. It costs $65 per week, and financial aid is available to those who qualify, which you can apply for during the sign-up process. To learn more, go to faithfulcounseling.com slash nothing is wasted. If you sign up through that link only, you will receive 10% off your first month of counseling for being a part of the Nothing is Wasted family. Again, that's faithfulcounseling.com slash nothing is wasted. Now, back to our interview. Honestly, I mean, you know, sitting here listening to you, I can't believe that you've endured all the different things that you endured growing up. And I just can't imagine how horrific as a child uh, trying to discern what all was going on. And like you said, looking at it through the lens of of your faith and what, I mean, faith foundations are supposed to be in an idealistic world, right? Supposed to be built Mm -hmm. (laughs) at an early age. And so you're learning some of these things, but then you're seeing and witnessing and, you know, experiencing around you something that seems very contrary to that. And, uh, as you were, as you were digging in, as you began kind of studying this stuff, I'm really curious mm-hmm. where you began to kind of discern or, or deduce um, where faith interplays with, where the supernatural interplays with mental health. 
Yeah, well, it started out just understanding how we bring it together with regards to our thoughts, our emotions, and our mm-hmm. spiritual understanding. Sometime in high school, and I've always been super analytical. I'm a brain on wheels, Lord knows. And so I was just <laughs> using my using my gifts, you know. Yep. This is what I had to work with. And so I would just study things. And I remember one Sunday morning, my dad was preaching, um, and I could tell, I could hear the story of what was happening to us. Mm-hmm in his message mm. and what in the scripture he was attracted to and, and, and the, the way that he was expounding on the story in scripture, I knew that it was him also processing yeah, what was going on. So I could hear it. And I began to be able to hear it in my mom's teaching as well. And so I think that was where it really started for me was like, okay, how do we embody the word mm. in our suffering, right? How do we, how do we put it on us so in a good. way that shapes itself around our frame? You know, we're, wow. we're like these mannequins yeah. and whatever outfit you put on, it's going to hang differently depending on the size and the height and the weight. And I started to see how personal every relationship would be with God mm based on what a person was going through. And so that's when I think I first became interested in the interaction between personality and circumstance and scriptural application and started listening for that. And even now, one of the first questions that I often ask a new client or someone at church that I'm ministering to, I'll ask them their favorite scripture. Hmm. It tells me a lot of what I might need to know about this person, right? So we have an elder at our church who's in charge of pastoral care, and her favorite scripture is, um, let your words always be seasoned with grace. Mm. And man, that is Elder (laughs) Chris all day, right? Um, But my favorite scripture is, um, uh, no man takes my life, I lay it down. I have the power Mm. to lay it down. I have the power to pick it up again. So now you just learned a lot about me. And uh, how me and and that elder at my church are different in personality. And so we're attracted to aspects of scripture that turn us on, that match our personality, that, that, that resound, something resounds within Mm -hmm. us based on what we hear. The problem is we become so attracted just to those scriptures that are bells and whistles for us that our Bibles become like Swiss cheese. Because there will be scriptures that we miss entirely. There will be messages that we miss entirely. Even as we're studying, we'll clamp down on a part of a chapter and and almost miss the rest of it, while someone else will clamp down on a completely different part because we don't realize how much we are going into the Bible looking to be rescued instead of looking to know God. Hmm. Wow. And that is the great challenge. And so as I began studying mental health, you know, what I was really looking at was the pattern behavior of human beings. I was fascinated by how we respond in patterned ways. We are not as unique as we would <laughs> like to believe that we are as individuals. <laughs> That's a really interesting <laughs> um, statement. Yeah, unpack yeah, that people, for me. Pe- yeah, people struggle with that, especially yeah. in the Western world where right. the individual is, right. you know, forever. Yeah, exactly. But, it's it's heralded as the thing, right? We're supposed to, right? You know, self-made yeah. man and woman, and we're supposed to really. I mean, we've got we've all got personal brands now that everybody's trying. Yeah. To, mm-hmm. <laughs> 
<laughs> exactly. Not the case. We are um, predictable in our behaviors. We're predictable in the way that we make decisions. And until you accept that, you can't move beyond it. You'll be trapped by it. So wow. the key to getting beyond your limitation is to accept your limitation, acknowledge your limitation, or else you'll never move outside of it because you don't believe it's there. Mm. And so as I began to study how people function, I realized that psychology really is the systematic study of the pattern behavior of fallen humanity. Yeah, that's it. Wow. Because wow. we always talk about, oh, well, we're all created in the image of God. No, humanity was created yeah. in the image of God. We lasted two chapters. Yeah. <laughs> and then everything right? broken. <laughs> <laughs> and then everything went down. Yeah. And so now we are, there are definitely glimpses of his beauty still, still observable in us. Right. But to say that we're all created in his image is a little bit of a misnomer because we are fallen. And so just like you can see a building that burned down and you can tell that the architecture was once glorious, even through the singed and and burned materials, that's kind of us. You know, you can see that there was something pretty cool there, but mostly we're just broken down. And so I think um, I became fascinated by that. So recognizing that psychology was observing the pattern behaviors of of fallen humanity, but explaining it poorly, because it was explaining it based on theories that didn't have their root in the word of God. And so um, I found it very challenging when I really embraced it for myself and began to kind of allow the word to shine its light all over me and see what patterned ways I behave and pattern ways that Mm -hmm. I think and how can um, I stopped taking credit for stuff that I thought I figured out that turned out to really just be my personality. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and let God then rebuild me from scratch to have that humility that, wow, I was, I thought I was something. I'm actually nothing um, of my own accord. Yeah. And then let God begin to build me from there. So um, I went to, got my bachelor's degree, got my master's degree in clinical social work. I specialized in addictions uh, because I live in Baltimore city. And at that time, one in four, we had a one in four uh, addiction rate of heroin. And so oh, wow. even though I wasn't really interested in working with addiction, um, I felt like I couldn't do my job well if I didn't yeah. have those skills in the environment where Absolutely. I was living. Um, but that was God as well, because it did also help me understand more about what my sister was going through. Um, I hadn't really started working on my own trauma yet. So mm. she was just kind of a non-entity at the time. Uh, my sister's name was Valerie, by the way. Uh, but at the time I had just kind of blocked her out of my reality and just kind of, you know, I'm going to go on with my life. Um, so yeah, I became, I started doing therapy work, working, um, did my internships, working with addicted people, um, at a a clinic for heroin addiction I learned a lot there about how people change, about how people break and how we all break in similar ways. And we all struggle in similar ways and we all fail for the same reasons, whether it's heroin or, you know cookie dough ice cream. Um, we're all pretty bad at, at changing, you know, so that was very enlightening for me. Um, and then a few years later, I decided to pursue my, start my PhD work. I had always intended to get my PhD. My dream job was to be a professor. I just wanted to spend my career in a office with books to the ceiling. Um, (laughs) thinking about how students would come back in decades later to tell me how, their careers were going and that I had had some impact on their lives. And that was how I meant to spend my life, you know, um, Lord had other and plans it didn't work out that way. That. Yeah. Always, <laughs> yeah. always. Uh, so I started my PhD work at a Christian university because I wanted to really spend my doctoral years uh, diving into how we could create approaches to therapy that would be particularly 
useful for Black women in the church. That was my kind of focus, Mm. just myself as a Black woman, seeing that mental health services were used a lot less in the Black community than in um, America as a whole, and knowing that we needed that, but also recognizing how important faith is in the Black community. And it's important in a particular way in that we we really um, like to have an explanation that includes spirituality. Mm -hmm. So the idea of it being like, Oh, my mental health is over here. My spiritual health is over there. It's like, no, I want to, I want to understand this through the lens of spirit. Yeah. That's a really important integration space um, for us and something that we emphasize. We're not the only people in the world, but it is something that we emphasize. Uh, So I wanted to do that. So I was excited to go to a Christian university because I did my undergrad and grad at at secular universities where I never had a problem talking about faith. They were fine with it. Um, I never had anybody push back. So that's why I was shocked when I got to a Christian university and I felt pushback for the very first time. And I was shaken. I just was like, what is going on? You know, I want to, I want to use my Bible as a basis to develop theoretical approaches. And I found out that the predominant belief in the field was that that was not possible. Wow. And so I was, yeah, I was completely shocked. Um, Even in one of the textbooks of our introductory semester, it was literally said this, the Bible does not teach us all that we need to know to help people who are hurting. And that just shook me because of the environment that I grew up in spiritually. Like I was waiting for lightning to like strike my textbook, (laughs) like (laughs) would never make any statement that even sounded remotely limiting of God or the word. Like that would have been so outside of of bounds for us. Um, And in fact, my Bible that my dad gave me when I was 19 years old, he wrote an inscription in the front that said, "Um, dear Anita, there is no question Mm. for which this book does not have the answer. Mm. Love daddy. I still have that same Bible, Schofield Bible, King James Version they gave me when I was 19 wow. years old. And I believed that. And so when I was told, well, the Bible, you can't find a theory of personality in the Bible. You can't find a theory of human behavior in the Bible. I was like, well, you can't find it. But uh, that doesn't mean it's not there. I already told y'all my favorite scripture. No man takes my life out later. Basically, yeah. don't tell me what I'm not going to do. So, you're telling me you haven't found it, but don't tell me it can't be found. Mm-hmm. And so first it was just um, kind of that bucking of authority, right? Yeah. And I remember um, one of the, the person who was the interim director at the time when he heard that I was interested in seeing if I could find what the world calls a theory of personality in the Bible. Um, he challenged, he attacked me. He was just like, oh, are you Freud? Are you Freud? Mm. And I said, Maybe. I don't know. Maybe. I, I, I had just yeah. never yeah, been what's anywhere. So, what's where so I was, special about Freud? You know, I mean. Right. Yeah. Exactly. What's the big deal? I had never been anywhere where I got that kind of pushback for wanting to accomplish something. And so I, there were a few other black students in my cohort. And over the next few months, it became clear that the projects that me and the other black students were trying to do were receiving a lot more um, mm. scrutiny and pushback than the other students. At the same time, I was getting to know the program director and he was a good man. Mm. You know, he was a white gentleman. Yeah. He was a good man. It was so clear to me that he loved the Lord. Um, but we kept running into this brick wall on these topics. And so I was very frustrated. I had started studying some things in scripture. God was, was just leading me to see amazing things in the word. And At the same time, I was becoming incredibly distressed because it felt like I was being 
victimized because of my race. Mm. And I had never had that kind of persistent racial pushback. I dealt with racial issues. I've been called the N-word. I've dealt with all kinds of things. I've had police issues. I've had it all happen, these different instances. But this consistent experience over time and in a Christian space, I was just like, what is going on? And so I got scared. I got scared because my heart was hardening with the frustration and the anger Mm of what seemed to be going on on these racial lines. And at the same time, God was showing me such amazing things in the word. And I was afraid that the pain in my heart was going to make me deaf in spirit. Mm. Wow! And so I couldn't afford to decide that this man was a racist. I couldn't afford to decide that because if I did, I knew that my heart, the anger in my heart would deafen me. Wow to the spirit. And I, I was so enthralled and blown away by what God was speaking. I couldn't take any risk that I couldn't hear his voice clearly. And so I'm, I took to analyzing the situation, right? I'm saying, okay, we are seeing an outcome in our cohort where our black students are having a different experience. Mm. There's no question about it. We were having a different experience Mm. at the same time. I'm speaking with this man on almost daily basis at this point. He's had me to his house for dinner. We've gone out to lunch. We've hashed over all these things. And I know that he is not racist in the traditional sense. I know that he's not waking up in the morning. Like I hate black people. It's clearly not the case. Mm -hmm. Right. That being said, the outcomes, Mm in the program were consistently different for what was happening with this few black students. And so I said, God, I need you to help me understand how this can happen. How is this man and me both holding our Bibles, same book and coming up with completely different um, conclusions Mm -hmm. about what's acceptable in the way that, I use my Bible, so to speak. And the response that I felt I heard from the Holy Spirit was that it really didn't have anything to do with the Bible. It had to do with who we were before we ever touched a Bible. Uh And so it was kind of like, put the Bible over there. Everybody just step away from the Bible, carefully back away from the word. And let's just look at who we are. You know, and I began to think like, where was he born and to whom and what kind of church did he attend and what experiences did he have and what does he believe about just the world in general and and where did I come from and how might that be different? I began to explore worldviews and culture, ancient history and mythology, just everything you could do to learn about people. So essentially, I took an anthropological approach to determining how we would have come to view the world the way that we do. And then once you recognize that, when we then pick a Bible up. Yeah, how it informs you, how you interpret the Bible then. It informs how we interpret the word. So just like my favorite scripture and our pastoral care elder's favorite scripture are so different because we're so different. Ethnically, my my position as a Black American woman made for lenses that were very different than his for a white American male. Wow. And so we were attracted to different areas of our Bible. We came to conclusions about what you use your Bible for. We had different definitions of spirit. Mm. And so let me explain a couple of things because I want people to hear this clearly. Yeah. This isn't about skin color. Mm. 
when I say I'm a Black American woman or African American woman, first of all, as Black Americans, um, we are an ethnic group, mm-hmm. just like um, Irish American is an mm-hmm. ethnic group. That's not a skin color, although right. we know that th- that Irish people generally are white people. So mm-hmm. I want to show that difference, right? Race is skin color, but it's also about community. So yeah. if we were to press like a rewind button on a on a video and rewind history thousands and thousands and thousands of years and this American continent would be empty except for indigenous people and we all went backwards, I would mostly um, genetically end up back in West Africa and the most white people would not, <laughs> right? So we had these different places in the world that we live in and Asian peoples and everywhere we go backwards. Then as those would be racial groups, but they would also be communities. Right. And when people live together in community, they have a set of belief systems about the world, about how families work, about what's a problem, about how to solve something that we think is a problem. It's all about, and we have beliefs about the supernatural. We have beliefs about the gods and what do the gods do? Do the gods like the people? Do the gods not like the people? Do the gods kill the people, help the people? Mm. Do the gods live with the people? Um, So we have all of these ideas and beliefs that are in these communities. When those groups begin to spread around the earth, they split into what we call ethnic groups. Mm. So you have white Irish, that's an ethnic group. White Italian, that's an ethnic group. You have a black Nigerian, that's an ethnic group. Black Jamaican. So now we have racial groups and ethnic groups. Does that make sense? And so when I say I'm a Black American, I'm not talking about my skin. Mm. All we have as Black Americans who are descendants of the slave trade, because we had memory taken from Mm. us, because we weren't allowed to speak the languages that we spoke before we were enslaved. We weren't allowed to communicate in that way. So the languages are lost. The histories are lost. The tribal names are lost. we would love to be able to say we're Yoruban American or Nigerian American. We don't have that kind of history. What is what is identifying about us to one another is this skin. Yeah. This skin on the American continent largely tells the story of a group of people who had a set of shared beliefs in a community far away and are now here. So I really want to make that clear because we get real quick to being like, oh, this is all about skin color. It's 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 not. The skin color helps to identify us as survivors mm. of the slave trade. Yeah. But we are also a community of people who have a system of beliefs and a worldview and a way of doing things and a way of conceptualizing problems and a way of solving problems. So that makes us a different group. So right. really, when we say black American, that's not really comparable as much to white American as it would be to like white Irish or white Italian or white whatever. But what we don't understand a lot of times about America or what we don't break down is that the American worldview is kind of like a blend of German, Dutch, British perspectives, that Western European perspective. And I believe I recently read that German American descendants actually make up the largest percentage of white American people. So there is ethnicity there as well. And so when we talk about the American ethnic um, perspective. It's kind of a, a blend of, of German, Dutch, yeah. and British yeah. all pushed together. And that is a way of viewing the world. So like we talked about earlier, um, one of the ways that that ethnic perspective views the world is in terms of the individual. Mm-hmm. Whereas yeah. the Black American perspective tends to view the world in terms of the group. Wow, It's totally fine. Neither one of those are better or worse. Right. But when those two groups who have different perspectives are living in the same space, yeah. 
And then one of them is in power and one is not. And then we have a conflict. Now we got a problem. See what I'm saying? Yep. Now we got a problem. See, pers- it's like personality differences. You and I may have different personalities, right? But it's no problem right here on the podcast. But if we suddenly had to move our families into the same house, <laughs> and then the house was mine, and then we had a conflict, who's going to have a bigger problem, right. me or you? Wow. You will. Because you're living at my house, and now you have a difference, but it's, this is my house, and I have set the rules in this house, and now when those personality differences arise, we're going to have a problem. But right here on the podcast, for your house and my house, it's no problem. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so wow. these worldview differences don't become a problem until there's a conflict, until they mismatch. And when the mismatch happens, it's complicated in this country by power. Yeah. Because power says you have to adjust. Mm you have to then come alongside the way that we do things. And so one of the arguments that the nation has been watching us have is, um, is there is this idea of systemic racism, which speaks to the group. And that is so difficult for the Western worldview to understand because the individual is the fundamental unit of measurement. And so it's like this belief that we're individuals who created ourselves somehow um, and have no, that that history hasn't impacted us or shaped Mm us. That is, that is a worldview that is not going to have an easy time absorbing the fact that um, history has in fact shaped us, right. you know, Western American worldview tends to be future oriented. The black American worldview tends to be past oriented in the sense, not that we're stuck in the past, but that we believe that the lessons from the past are critical to success right. in the future. Right. And so when you have a future oriented group who hates to talk about the past and a group of people who are saying, if you don't learn the lessons of the past, we will repeat them. Wow. Yeah. Now we got a conflict about what's the topic. Whew. Is the topic just moving forward? Everyone just move forward, just move forward. And, or is it, do we need to go over and learn the lessons of the past? And that's a disagreement. But when the group in power mm. says, we reject the past, mm. what happens to the group who's saying, but you're not learning the lessons yeah. of the past? Yeah. So these are the arguments that we're having. So back to where I was at my, with my professor, we weren't having a theological argument. Yeah we were having a cultural argument. And so the body of Christ is being shredded because people are determined to assert that we're having a theological argument. Yeah. But we're really having a cultural argument. Hey friends, Davey here. I have a question for you. Do you have a heart for helping other people navigate their personal trauma, tragedies, or major life transitions? If you do, keep listening because whether or not you feel like you have the means or resources or the proper training, you can help others take back their story. And here's how. If you have a home church that you attend, we would love to partner with you to bring the Pain to Purpose course to your church. That's right. I'm talking to you. You don't have to be a pastor or a counselor or a minister of any kind. All you have to have is a heart for other people and a willingness to walk with them on their journey. I've been on the phone this week with multiple pastors who want to launch the Pain to Purpose course in their spiritual community, but they're struggling to find the right facilitator to guide the group discussions. I wonder if your church would launch the course in a heartbeat. 
if someone like you approached them with both information about the course and the commitment to help launch and facilitate it. I realize this, this is a big ask, but this could very well be part of the purpose and mission you're looking for on the other side of your own valley. One of the things we say a lot at Nothing Is Wasted is that your redemption story begins when you take your pain and turn it around by helping others in theirs. And this is a perfect opportunity to begin that redemption journey. You could be the pioneer behind a major healing movement at your church by launching the Pain to Purpose course, and we want to show you how. We've wrapped this course into an easy to implement package. Our team will walk beside you, train you, and equip you with everything you need to be our pain to purpose guide at your local church. If you're interested in partnering with us to bring the pain to purpose course to your church, we will help you with everything from how to approach your pastors, to what to say to them, and even how to get them excited for the course. You'll be able to tell your pastor that it shouldn't take any additional time or effort on his or her part. All you have to do right now is this. Text COURSE to 66866. Again, that's C-O-U-R-S-E, COURSE to 66866. Pull out your phone right now and text that number. And as an added bonus, if you help us get the course launched at your church, we'll give you your choice of either free access to the Nothing Is Wasted partner program for an entire year or two free coaching sessions with one of our certified guides. Again, just text COURSE to 66866 and let's start a healing movement together. Yeah, it's really interesting that you're talking about approaching specifically scripture. If we go into that, you and your professor approaching scripture from completely different worldviews, mm-hmm. bringing with it completely different presuppositions and assumptions because of your experiences. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, even if we take the black white conversation out of it, I feel like just as Western Americans, we approach scripture in a way that scripture wasn't meant to be approached because of the worldview that we hold. Exactly. Scripture was written in a context that is Eastern to an Eastern people with Eastern worldviews and Eastern presuppositions and assumptions being made right there. And so we Mm -hmm. already get it disoriented and now it's getting even more complicated, you know, in your experience right there, because you had, you now have two different cultures or two different worldviews Mm -hmm. that are, um, one yep. that is kind of one that has been 100% shaped by an, a Western view, and one that has kind of been, I don't know, in some ways, um, both African and Western. Yeah, exactly. Both tradition, what we would call traditional African worldview, yeah, yeah. Um, and Western. Yeah, and when we speak about that traditional African worldview, that phrase primarily refers to the tribes that would have comprised Western Africa. Right. Um, in a more ancient time. So wow. yeah, we're having a lot of worldview arguments right now. And that what you just said about Western already being in trouble because the Bible wasn't written from a Western perspective, right? right. Um, that goes to another very dangerous term that we use a lot. So I hope I don't have all your listeners get ready to turn us off right now, but I'm going to go ahead and <laughs> no, say it. Please, this is so rich. This is so good. Come on, Dr. Anita. We <laughs> use this term Christian worldview. Mm. It doesn't exist. Wow. A Western Christian worldview yeah, exists. Right, right. A traditional African Christian worldview exists. Mm-hmm. An East 
Western Christian worldview exists. But by itself alone, you can't, a Christian worldview is a difficult concept because which Christian? Yeah. Yeah. Which Christian? Because the differences between worldviews is not a mutually exclusive set of values. Let me make that really clear. This is another way we challenge. If I say, well, Black Americans value this, then someone who's not Black will say, well, I value that too. So, And then somehow to them, that makes it a moot point because the individualist perspective of the Western world only understands groups in terms of a bunch of individuals who are exactly the same. And if you can find one person who's not the same, then the belief is that the group does not exist. That's how difficult it is for the Western world to get groups. And so when I talk about worldviews, they are not mutually exclusive sets of values. We're all human beings. There's a range of values. It's a limited set. There's only so many available. But different groups emphasize Hmm. different values above others. They rank them. Yeah. And when we rank something higher and another group ranks a different value higher, the worldview becomes... Uh, centered around the higher rankings right. in a way that makes the worldview seem very different right. and at times mutually exclusive in their way of wanting to solve problems, right? Mm. So um, some psychologists like Carl Jung um, was a psychologist in, uh, who was a contemporary of Freud's who really helped flesh out the idea of the introvert versus the extrovert. Mm. And what he says, we all have some introversion and some extroversion in us, but one of them becomes so emphasized yeah that over time in our lives, we practically lose the capacity for the other. Not because we never had it, but because we put so much emphasis on the stronger one that the the, the lesser one just kind of went away. And wow. so now you have these two totally different people. And the same thing happens with worldviews. When a group focuses on one thing very strongly, it becomes the defining factor yeah. of the entire worldview. And so we're having these worldview arguments. The Western worldview is power-focused. Mm-hmm. Empire. Empire. Right. Empire, sir, you said it. And that is the most destructive thing that's happening in the church right now. And it is breaking my heart and infuriating me equally. Um, because that Western worldview is about empire. It's about power. It's about law and order. It's about control. That is a cultural right. perspective. Right. And then that cultural perspective has taken on the Bible. Mm-hmm. And now using biblical language to express a cultural perspective and then marketed that as the Christian worldview, like Kleenex has made itself synonymous (laughs) with tissues. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Like Google is synonymous with search engine, but we know there's Bing and Yahoo and all these other search engines, but Google has made an empire that made itself synonymous. So when I say I'm going to Google something, that means that I'm going to search it, even if I don't use Google. If I need a Kleenex, that means tissue, even if it's a different brand. Right. And so the Western worldview has has stamped Christian worldview as their own. Mm. Which is crazy, Dr. Anita, because if you think about, if you look at the narrative of Scripture, and you look at mm-hmm. your protagonist and antagonist, like mm-hmm. let's just talk about as if this is a story. Well, your, your protagonist is God's people, right? They're the ones that you're pulling forth through the whole journey that there's, you're seeing this fall and this, this cycle of fall and redemption, restoration, all this stuff that's happening. The antagonist is who? Egypt, Rome, right? Persia, mm-hmm. all mm-hmm. of these different, mm-hmm. that, that are the embodiment of empire. It's mm-hmm. these two kingdoms yeah. that are being expressed throughout the entire thread of scripture, empire versus shalom. And yep. shalom, this more Eastern God's people worldview is more of a collective communal 
community-oriented perspective mm-hmm. and worldview. Absolutely. And the American evangelical church is confusing empire for kingdom right now. Yeah. Wow. And it's about to destroy us. It's about to destroy the body. Well, Aubrey, I can't wait for our listeners to hear the second part of this conversation. Um, obviously you can tell she she is a spitfire. She just brings it no holds bar, but it's, it's impactful. It's truthful. It's so good. So good. You can find Dr. Anita on Facebook, follow her on Instagram at Dr. Anita Phillips. And we would love if this podcast is ministering to you, the best way for you to help us and partner with us to minister to other people, to make sure this is impacting other people's lives is Go and rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, let me tell you what this does. This, uh, for whatever reason, when people begin rating and reviewing it, it it there's an algorithm built that brings the podcast uh, higher up into the rankings because of the activity. So sometimes someone will launch a podcast and it will be a brand new launch and they'll be way up in the rankings because all of their activity, ratings, reviews, subscribes, all of it is recent. And so the more recent activity that you can help us with, the more this podcast gains exposure, so the more it can help other people. And so if these stories are really helping you, uh, would you do that? Would you do us a favor? Go and rate and review the podcast. On top of that, we love to hear your reviews. We love to go back and read them. I get the pleasure of hearing them because often Aubrey will read them on the air for us and I have not read them yet. And so I actually have one. Can I read it right now? I would love that. This is a great review. Educational and inspiring. I love the topics this podcast covers. Lately, the topic of racial trauma has helped open my eyes to what my black brothers and sisters go through that Mm. I never saw before. Wow. I think that's powerful right there. Very powerful. Someone's perspective has changed because of what's happening. Praise God for that. That is so good. So good. You can also follow us on Instagram at Nothing Is Wasted Ministries, at Davy Blackburn, and at Obsamp. That's another way that you can help the podcast as well, especially if it means something to you. We also want to thank uh, Sleeping at Last for providing our incredible music. You can find his music anywhere you listen. Monday, we're going to release the final part of our ongoing racial reconciliation conversations with the second part of this conversation with Dr. Anita Phillips. And so why don't you listen to this little teaser from that conversation? The problem with not being willing to learn lessons from the past is not having the humility to see how you have the capacity to fail exactly the same way the people before you, your ancestors, have failed and failed and failed and failed. Mm. How did Christians manage? How did Christians manage to argue for slavery for hundreds of years on this continent? How? How did Christians in America manage to justify slavery with their Bibles or choose not to get involved because, you know... Right. I don't, we don't question authority. God sets the authorities. He puts the authorities in place. Be subject to the authority. So we're going to allow slavery because we don't want to buck authority. How? How did Christians do that? Because if you cannot get your hands on how it happened then, you will let it happen now. 